Hello and welcome to the Football Collective Podcast, a football research podcast for debate, discussion, highlighting members of the collective, their research and all things football within the world of academia. Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Football Collective Podcast. My name is Sarthak Mondal and I have got with me Gavin Price today. Hello Gavin, how are you? Hi, Sarthak. Good to be with you. Um, it's a beautiful day today. Uh, so, welcome, Gavin, for the first time on the Football Collective podcast, and I'm sure it won't be your last. So, for our listeners, it would be great if you can introduce yourself around the works you have done and your background, basically. Sure. So, I'm Gavin Price. I'm a sports diplomacy expert from Bond University in Queensland, Australia. I'm a PhD candidate also through Bond, where I'm writing on sports diplomacy as it relates to small nations and, and regions. I also, I'm also an independent consultant for the International Cultural um, Relations uh, Limited and Council Limited. Um, I'm, I have a number of projects underway at the moment. So one of them is working with the British Council of Wales to undertake a sports diplomacy audit and review for the British Council Wales and Welsh Government and hopefully that will um, form the basis for a sports diplomacy strategy for Wales moving forward. I've also worked as an international trade lead for the UK Government, the Australian Government, um, the EU and and a few universities in Australia so um, but my, my, my passion and background is around sports diplomacy, football diplomacy and sports diplomacy, particularly as it relates, relates to small nations. Thank you for that answer, Gavin. Uh, so basically, over the last few months, essentially, ever since the takeover of Newcastle United was announced, we have heard a lot of stuff around sport diplomacy. So basically, for our listeners, if you can, like, say, define what is sport diplomacy, or rather say, what is football diplomacy, because it is the Football Collective podcast. And is it essentially a good or bad thing? Sure. So, so sports diplomacy is a fast-moving, it's, it's a fluid space. Sometimes sports diplomacy is a confusing construct. So I try to offer a, a practical, simple definition. So historically, politics have mixed. If you think about it, dating back to the ancient Olympiads, and then if we fast-forward to even the last few weeks, just, just in, um, in the UK and in Europe and the wider world, we've seen the debate around the restarting of sports in the post-COVID world. Um, in the UK, we've seen um, Marcus Rashford as, as an athlete activist um, going into bat for underprivileged families to ensure that kids get school dinners um, during the lockdown. So if we wanted to think about it more strategically, however, um, we could look at something like Dr. Stuart Murray's definition. Um, Stuart is also from Bond University in Australia. I work with him closely, but Stuart says it's the strategic use of and partnership with sport, sporting events and sports people to build relations with people, nations and states conducive to win-win outcomes. So if we think of things like business networking, sports linked tourism, nation branding, bidding for and hosting mega events, social inclusion programs, um, even this week, for example, if you look at maybe a a harder power example, we've seen the UK and Australia announce plans for a prospective new free trade agreement. And if you look at the, the videos that the Foreign Office have released around that and, and 
Department for, for um, International Trade um, in Australia, it's used sports diplomacy imagery as, as a way to sort of build initial ties between the UK and Australia. So images of Ashes Test cricket or, or Wimbledon finals featuring Australian and, and British players. Um, football diplomacy is, is, a, is a subgenre of sports diplomacy. But what I will say about that, because it is the world game and it has a huge international footprint, I feel as though it deserves singular focus. So, so um, all those aspects I just spoke about as they relate to sports diplomacy, they relate to football diplomacy. So it's using football as the prism and platform to build relations. Thanks for the answer. And definitely around football diplomacy, we have seen the World Cup bid of Australia mm -hmm. and New Zealand to host the Women's World Cup together. And essentially, Japan pulling out of the bid, citing that they won't be given mm -hmm. to World Cups to get back to back or two major events back to back. And it is like a beautiful example of you can say cross confederation collaboration as Australia mm -hmm. essentially are from the Asian Football Confederation and New Zealand from the Oceanian Football Confederation. And we have had examples of a lot of football diplomacy or you can say sports diplomacy from Australia in the last few years say the Commonwealth Games, the Cricket World Cup before that, the Women's Cricket World, T20 Cricket World Cup, and now the Women's Football World Cup, which is probably in 2023 will take place in Australia. So if you can explain, give us like an example of what is Australia's strategy to, you can say, sports diplomacy essentially, so that we can have a bit more idea about it. Sure, sure no problem. So... Australia certainly is, as, as you as you just described, one of the leading lights in, in the sports diplomacy space. Certainly, as it as it um, comes to a formal policy framework. So, it recently launched its sports diplomacy 2030 strategy. Um, one of the the kind of relatively unique and most important things about that strategy is it's it's not just about what we call traditional sports diplomacy. So. Um, Without going into too much detail, traditional sports diplomacy is more what I see as a kind of old-fashioned approach, whereby you might see somebody like Vladimir Putin in, in, in a kind of relatively sort of short-term and, and sometimes clumsy way trying to use the 2018 World Cup to project Russia as a welcoming and an open, open society on the world stage when we know in the background there are issues around human rights, women's rights, international security, and, and, and a number of other issues. So where, where we are with the Australian strategy is it's more about networked or, or new, new sports diplomacy. So the government in Australia has decided to partner directly with the sports ecosystem from the grassroots to the elite level. So it's built ties with, with um, organisations like the Football, Football Federation of Australia, um, the local organising committee for, for the Olympics, the Australian Commonwealth Games team, um, the Netball Federation, and, and, and all the other sports in Australia. And it's, it's consulted them actively, and then it's built programmes of sports diplomacy around that. So a concrete example might be the work that they've done in the Pacific Island regions, whereby um, they've, they've gone out there and they've partnered with local people on the ground, and, they, and they've sent Australian athletes, administrators, working in conjunction with local Australian consulates around Pacific Island nations to build ties. So the Australian women's um, 
the young Matildas, so the youth women's team, toured the Pacific recently. And for example, when they went there to, to play teams like Fiji, they actually trained directly with the Fijian national team. So they were building cultural ties, sharing skills, sharing know-how. Um, they also did a number of cultural visits to sites, so to, to, to museums and sites of cultural, um, cultural interest, just to build relations and ties and plant seeds so that young people from both countries see each other's nations in a better light. They also did a lot of work around disability sports, um, uh, women in leadership programs through sports. So it's that, it's that, that actual tie networking between government, sport, sports people and related organizations. That's the most important point. So my next question is basically like, obviously going back to the Newcastle takeover from Saudi Arabia and the other examples essentially of UAE state-owning Manchester City or you can say Qatar state-owning PSG. It is, these are all examples of, I guess, some forms of sports diplomacy. But going to the broader question, I guess there are both pros and cons of anything. So is sport diplomacy essentially like a good thing or a bad thing? And when does it become like a bad thing? So like some examples of that, basically. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a really great question. So sports diplomacy is, is, is a tool like any form of diplomacy. It can be used in both positive and negative ways. And, and there are many, many examples of both. And I will give you some examples of, of um, more negative aspects of sports diplomacy in a moment. What I will say is, though, it, it's, you know, it's definitely been used overwhelm, overwhelmingly for the power of good. Um, we're all familiar with Mandela's comments on the power of sport to do good. The issue is in, in the how and the sports diplomacy is the how. So, you know, Mandela had this grandiose plan, but he never told people how to get there. So the sports diplomacy is the how. And it's down to people behind sports diplomacy policy and implementation to make sure that the programs uh, are used for positive means. However, if we talk about some, some negative um, examples. So, for example, there was the bidding scandal around the awarding of the World Cups to both Qatar and, and Russia, and, and that, that is well detailed in the media. So that cast football and sport in a negative light, particularly um, peak organisations like FIFA and UEFA have, have been under the lens. Um, if we also think about history in the past, we can think of the um, 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 apartheid um, um, problem in, in Southern Africa, where, where um, a number of uh, nations refused to, to, to play sport with, with those nations. That's another example. We've also seen various um, regimes around the world use sport as a tool for, for not good reasons. An obvious one is the 1936 Olympics, where the Nazis used it to project their ideology. We've seen um, Mussolini, for example, on the build-up to the 1934 World Cup, um, use, use sport to build stadiums, to project an image of national might of a, of a confident nation. But we're talking about a fascist dictatorship. And some of those stadiums that exist today in places like Florence, Rome, and, and Bologna. So there's still a legacy there today. Um, so, so there are many examples. Uh, you know, another one might be the, the, um, the, the World Cups and, and Olympics in Rio. We, we heard about how the favelas were, were um, 
were, were bulldozed for infrastructure. We've heard about um, human rights scandals around the building of stadiums in places like Qatar for the upcoming World Cup. So there, there, there are many, many examples. But as I said earlier, it's down to administrators, governments and people within the sports ecosystem to deploy sports diplomacy overwhelmingly for good. For that answer, Gavin. So before we finish the podcast, my last question is essentially, uh, as we have, as you have said, the various negatives of sport diplomacy and what I understand is this is basically, you can say, sort of sport washing rather than sport diplomacy. So is there a point where academics will really need to, you can say, separate, and not only academics, but governance, governing bodies across the world will need to separate sport washing from sports diplomacy so that the positives mm-hmm. to, positives can outweigh the negatives and the negative effects are reduced to the minimum. Sure. So that, that again, that's a, that's a, um, a tri- tricky question. And it's also obviously sports washing is a, is a buzz issue. So I think it's useful just to detail what we mean by sport washing. So, if, so very simply, it's the hosting of a sporting event or perhaps a, a um, country um, owning a team or sponsoring a team. So, you know, Qatar um, have strong links with, with teams like um, Bayern Munich, for example. Um, so what it is, is when, when people... Um, they see someone like Qatar doing these things, but they feel as though it's a means through which it can overshadow, for example, a, um, a poor history around human rights or human security or maybe sustainability issues. Um, and I know, know, for example, Amnesty International criticized Azerbaijan as, as, as choice for the um, 2019 UEFA Europa League final on, on the basis of human rights violations. Having said that, there are always shades of grey. So a lot of people are actively criticising Qatar, which I understand, and I have some concerns about the human rights record, like like many people do. However, um, there are others have argued that that there are some really good elements around it. So some have seen Qatar, if it's a more um, stable and and outward-looking country that's partnering with the world, it's more likely to be um, a bastion of potential stability in the Middle East, which we know has been a... Um, a challenging geopolitical um, region for, for, for many, many years. So I guess the point is, um, yes, there are sports washing concerns. Um, again, it's about, I think, the intent behind the sports, the, policy, the, the sports diplomacy policies or the football diplomacy policies. What are they trying to do? Are there overwhelming drivers to try and cover up things like human rights violations or are, or are they about the greater good? If they're about the greater good, maybe it's a good thing overall. Thanks for the answers, Gavin. It was nice speaking to you this morning. And I hope you are enjoying your lockdown. And I hope you have a nice day and staying safe. Likewise, Safak. Appreciate the opportunity to speak to you. Stay safe yourself and and take care out there. And uh, good luck with your studies and business interests. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye.